On episode 210 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll experience a serve technique masterclass from elite tennis coach James Ludlow. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey there, this is Mirban, and welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. And I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode, and I'm excited myself to re-listen to it because we're going to really dive super deep into serve technique, probably the deepest I've ever dove into the subject on the podcast, at least. And this time with certified tennis instructor at Online Tennis Instruction, James Ludlow. And if you've heard my podcast and summits before, and if not, welcome. I have interviewed some OTI instructors like Greg Lesur and Florian Mayer, and they're fantastic. And so today we talk about the struggles on the technical side of the serve, uh, how to improve your throwing motion, how important it is to be relaxed on the serve, platform versus pinpoint stances, how to improve your toss consistency, keys to a great second serve and a great kick serve the importance of avoiding over-rotation. These are amazingly important subjects on the serve. And again, I am going to be listening to this uh, at least once more and then uh, implementing where I need to, and you should be doing the same. And I hope you have some pieces of paper and a pen or two in case your first pen runs out of ink, always happens to me, to just take notes on this great information. So uh, with that, I'm going to kick it off to the interview. Uh, with James, who is just so passionate. And as you'll hear, he has dove deep into tennis technique and studied it for thousands of hours. So uh, without further ado, here is my interview with James Ludlow. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Tennis Falls podcast. It's a pleasure to have on James Ludlow on the podcast. And uh, he is one of the Great instructors uh, in the online space, although obviously he teaches at clinics and so forth. But uh, I've come across his work on YouTube with online tennis instruction and really found his instruction fantastic, particularly on the serve. So I figured let's bring him on. The serve is a, a very important part of the game, if not the most important part. And so James has a lot of experience with that area of the game. So, uh, James, thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast. Great to have you on. Yeah, I got to say, you pronounced my name right, the second name. So that's a good start. <laughs> huh, thank you. Yeah, it's funny. Actually, like as I was saying it, I, I was thinking like, am I going to say this correctly? <laughs> so uh, good, good, yeah, fantastic. Good. Uh, yeah, and we were talking about uh, Wales football a bit uh, before this, so that was fun. But James, uh, I always enjoy uh, getting to know how people got into the game. And you've actually had a very rapid progression thanks to your you know, thousands of hours studying, which we'll obviously get into. So how did you get your start playing tennis? Well, it was an interesting start, to say the least. Up until the age of 14, late 14, uh, I weren't interested in any sports. I wanted to be a baker, a chef. Uh, And my father sat me down and showed me the highlights of the 2008 Wimbledon final between Rafa and Roger. 
And from that point, boom, I was hooked. I thought, okay, yeah, I want to do tennis. And then I started playing, nothing serious, just playing. I really loved the game. I had a passion for the game very quickly. Uh, went out to playing at the age of 14. Uh, and then a year later, I was surprised on my birthday uh, to a clinic with Florian. Uh, I went out there under the impression that I was a brilliant player. I was like, watch me impress this guy. It's going to be awesome. And I was quickly brought back down to earth. And <laughs> I realized I had zero technique on anything. Uh, but that's where I was introduced to tennis. It was that 2008 final. Uh, but from that point, dude, boom, I love the game. Still love it now wow. after all these hours. <laughs> yeah, I, I can certainly see that in your videos. So at what level were you when you actually went to the OTI clinic? <sighs> like a very low level, let's say that. It was... Um, I was only been playing for just under a year at that point. Uh, nothing, like I said, nothing serious. It was mainly just playing in the park with my father, for example. And then we did do tournaments after that, uh, but I did it for maybe three or four years, traveling around the tournaments. Uh, but I found that I never really enjoyed it. I didn't know what it was, but never really clicked for me. Uh, even when I won, I didn't get any sort of feeling from it. But what I always loved was technique. I have a very analytical brain, and that's where... I realized my passion really, really was uh, with the technique. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. And so, as I mentioned earlier, so you have spent thousands of hours studying the game. And I'm curious, like, do you have a particular methodology or system as far as, you know, studying the game? Because sometimes we can study a lot, but we, we, we don't retain, we don't learn. But obviously, you know, you've come to the point where you can teach uh the, the you know the proper techniques very well so uh did you have a system for your learning and application yeah there was a i always refer back to a bruce lee quote he's one of my uh, role models and he said absorb what is useful discard what is useless and then add what is uniquely your own and i always followed that so i was mainly put under the oti system the oti methodology that's my main study point but then I was introduced to the people like uh, Vic Braden, uh, all these other coaches, I, since I tried to study as much of different sources as possible. And then what I do is I always have a notebook or a journal. I write everything down and then I just ask myself questions about it. Or, okay, how does this make sense to me? Does it apply to me? Uh, do I agree with this particular concept and so forth? Uh, but then the other main important thing was for me is to apply it in my own tennis, since then I know if it works or not. So when I'm learning, uh, I try and absorb as much information as possible. The things I like then, I say, okay, I'm going to go out and try it, test it, see what, how it applies to me. Uh, and then from there, that's how I've been able to build sort of systems on how to apply technique and so forth and help other players with it. So, Cool, James. And so I, I guess you kind of described it here for my next question, but I was curious how you... The process for um, discarding information. So say you take a lesson and somebody you know tells you X, Y, Z, and then you know, you're able to discern that it's not applicable to your game. So how do you go about doing that? Well, it started to come with more experience. When I started to study, for example, the OTI methodology, Vic Braden and so forth, then I could, the more experience I built in the game, the more I could decipher the, let's say, efficient and inefficient way of teaching. I never say there's a, a wrong or right way. You can do anything, but there's efficient and inefficient. Uh, so then I just, the more experience I got in the game, I started to realize, okay, this, for example, if players are teaching uh, the stop and the motion and so forth, I started realizing that that's not an optimal way to do it. There's a better way to do it. You can do it that way. Uh, but for me, I'd say personally, 
the way I deciphered that information was simply due to the more experience I had in the coaching industry. So. Gotcha. That makes sense, James. I I recently saw, I guess, obviously an older video of of Vic Braden and uh, talking about pronation and, and, you know, where the um, palm should be facing, you know, after you strike the ball. So uh, I was wondering, like, what are, you know, one or two of the biggest um, uh, takeaways that you got from uh, from Vic Braden's teachings, if you can remember? One of the biggest, I I tell you, one of the ones that really uh, stood out to me, uh, two of them, actually. Um, the first one is he talks about the, the use of the legs and the serve. And even when I was first started off in the game, I was under the impression myself that in order to generate a lot of power, I should jump on the serve, really try and use the lower body. Uh, and I always remember watching a video where he had players jump on a trampoline and try and hit the serve. Uh, and you initially, you think, wow, they're going to get a lot of power, but they actually lost up to 50% of the power by using the trampoline since now all the stabilizers are gone. They've got no foundation to hit off. Uh, and that was a real eye-opener for me. That was a big one. Since then, I realized from that point that, okay, the legs are very important, but the arm mechanics are extremely important. They probably give you 80% of the results, and the legs give you around 20%. And then the second one for me was the ball toss. He did a study on the height of the ball toss, uh, and people often think to give themselves more time, they toss the ball very high. Uh, but he did the study that a higher ball is falling faster, so it's in the strike zone for a much shorter period of time. A lower ball toss remains in the racket head for a much longer period of time. And that was an eye-opener for me also. Those two things were really big for me. Yeah, really fantastic stuff. I mean, certainly, you know, you can use all the legs you want, but if you don't have the the throwing motion intact, which, you know, has been a tough for me to, to integrate properly as well, uh, then you're not going to have a great serve. And yeah, yeah. A lot of great points there. Um, appreciate that. So, um, the serve, let, let's dive deep into that. I think that's what we're going to be doing this episode for the most part. So, um, what part of the serve, you know, in working with amateur players, which you all do a great job at at OTI, um, you know, I, I recently hit with, with Greg, as we were talking about before the show, and he's fantastic. I've had him on my summits and he's a great player, you know, very high level as well. Got, uh, you know, ATP point, um, and then Florian over there. Uh, and you have, uh, some others as well. Uh, Nadim, I think I was just watching a video from him on the toss. So, uh, what part of the serve do amateur players struggle with the most from what you've seen? For me, it's I probably do around five to ten reviews every day of different students on the serve. Mm. And the most common problem we see uh, for myself is what we call the open racket face. So throughout mm. the swing, they open up the palm and the strings. And as soon as they do that, they now hinder their ability to get into what we call the racket drop. That's a major power position on the serve. Pre-stretches the shoulder muscles, the forearm muscles, and so forth. But as soon as we open up the racket face, it not only hinders your ability for the racket drop, but it does put a necessary strain on the shoulder joint. And that's a very common problem. And the question you got to ask is, why does it happen? Very natural. It's because our brain, what's the most logical thing to do? We want to point the strings to the ball. Because we want to make contact with the ball. But if you actually look at the best players in the world in slow motion, the strings are not pointed to the ball until the very last second, until they make contact. Uh, and that's why I do believe that the tennis, the serve is probably the most difficult shot to master in all sports. Very uh, dysfunctional for the brain. It doesn't make sense to the brain. But what I will say is to all you guys watching, once you master it, uh, it's a very great feeling to know that you can hit a good serve. So, yeah. 
but that's the most common thing the open racket face i would say for me yeah yeah see that a lot with amateurs so what is the solution or solutions to that problem well the best thing i can uh, give advice for players is first of all break it down that's the first step uh, but the key that they have to master is what we call that right to left arm action if they can get into what we call a half serve position the half serve position is basically where the elbow is just below shoulder level tip of the racket points to what would be the right side fence if you're a right-handed player and when you're in that position you just want to make sure that the palm and the strings are pointing relatively down towards the ground that's the first key and then if they can get the racket moving in a right to left manner by bending from the elbow the best analogy i can give of it is just imagine you're saluting like the soldiers do in the army if you can get that going where the knuckles remain pointed to the sky the palm pointing down if they get that going, everything else will start to fall into place. But that's the main key for fixing it. And then if you want to go creative, then you can use like the bottle drill, for example. So you get the bottle of water, you fill the water bottle up. I've got a big bottle here. It's not going to work with this. <laughs> but the idea is you fill it up so you have just a quarter of water in the bottle. And then you bend from the elbow, move it right to left over the head. And the key for you is to keep the water in the bottom of the bottle. If you open up the palm, the water will go to the top of the bottle. And that's when you know that you've done it incorrectly. But the best the best way to just focus on it, just imagine that you're saluting. Like the soldiers doing the army, it's that same action, just like so. And then you just add the racket, same thing. Very nice, James. I think since we're recording this on Saturday night, I might try that with uh, one-fourth of gin in the bottle, you know, and then just <laughs> enjoy it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. That, that's a that's a great one. Really appreciate that. So, uh, you know, that's once we do that too. I still do see players, even though they have a pretty decent right to left. I guess the racket drop still, you know, they have issues with that getting the depth there. And so, I mean, I imagine you know some of that's due to tightness as well. But like, how can we achieve a better racket drop? Whether that's technical or even you know mobility exercise, like anything. Like, what have what have you seen helps with that? Yeah, there's a great point you said about mobility. That's the first thing that you have to be aware of. You don't want to force the racket drop uh, since you're not, I'm not aware of your shoulder health and condition. So just be aware of that. Uh, but one thing I do always say to players is we show them the optimal racket drop, which would be along the right side of the body, uh, the tip of the racket around hip level, depending on the shoulder flexibility. That's the optimal racket drop. But what I always say to players is you don't need to achieve that racket drop. You don't need to have it picture perfect. All you got to do is work within your own limitations. So even if you can get it uh, just 3 or 4% better than what it already is, you're going to see an improvement in the effortless power on the serve. But how do you do that? How do you get into a better racket drop? Well, there's several, several drills you can do. One brilliant one is we call it the elbow, the ball drill. So you would toss the ball up and you would try and have the ball fall onto your elbow. Now, naturally, that puts you into that racket drop position. And then you may be asking, okay, but how do I progress that with a ball? How do I start hitting the ball? Well, what you do is you basically trick the brain. So you do two where you elbow the ball. On the third one, you would toss the ball up and you just make a conscious effort on elbowing the ball. But the last second, you swing up to contact. Now, it's going to feel very weird, very strange in the beginning. You'll most likely miss hit, miss hit the ball, but that's completely normal. That's fine. Uh, but that will really start to get the racket falling down and away from the body into that racket drop as soon as you get that feeling. And what I think the elbow, the ball drill is so excellent because you can have players stop in that position. And now they get a visual idea of what that racket drop should actually look like also. And having that visual uh, picture in your mind for what it should look like, it's also very, very beneficial for players. 
Yeah, I can definitely vouch for that drill because I, I watched one of your videos um, with that drill and I did it and it definitely helped my uh, my power on the surf. So that I'm glad you brought that one up. Some more questions on the serve. So I know obviously, you know, there's great servers who execute the platform stance, you know, both feet apart and they don't move forward or the back one doesn't move forward. And then, you know, you've got the pinpoint where the back foot moves forward and other mishmashes of that. So um, how do you go about recommending one versus the other to players? Is there any like bodily characteristics of people where you say, oh, you know, maybe the pinpoint is better for you or vice versa? Well, the main thing that comes down to the discussion about stances for us when we're talking about technique is let's say there's a player who's maybe you want to work on your arm mechanics. Um, then we refer to the platform stance because that's the easiest stance to use when you're learning other techniques. Trying to coordinate the pinpoint along with other mechanics can be difficult. But with that be in mind, if the pinpoint stance works for you, uh, then by all means, don't change it. As the saying goes, if it ain't if it if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. That's the, that's the saying. Uh, but of course, the there are benefits to both stances. Which one is better? Me personally, I use the platform stance. I uh, just a personal preference. But with players, if I find the player is having a very hard time coordinating the ball toss, the mechanics, all this kind of stuff, then I'd recommend okay, let's let's just break it down. Just work from a platform stance. Uh, but as you advance, if you want to move to a pinpoint, then for sure, that's definitely a possibility. But Federer, one of the greatest servers of all time, uses that platform. So, <laughs> yeah, that is true. Is it, I mean, is it true that uh, pinpoint stance uh, players can get higher up or anything? Like, is there any validity to that or not? Does it matter? Well, the, the idea, it doesn't really matter, but the idea is I remember studying this. Basically, the pinpoint, I, I'm trying to think where it gives you. The platform, I there's like a way, let me try, I'm trying to jog my memory now. There's so many stuff I've learned over the years, but there was a benefit yeah. to both stances. But I believe the pinpoint stance either allows you to go more into the court, the platform stance drives you more up. Um, but yeah, I to be honest with you on that question, on the pinpoint, I would have to do more studying again on that before I give a mm -hmm. valid answer since I don't want to give any misinformation to viewers. Right. That's very important to me. So, uh, yeah, I'd have to study more on that particular thing. Sure. Yeah, that's that makes sense, James. So so with the toss, I mean, uh, and, and I was also watching a video on that, too. I mean, that's so important. And, I, you know, I was playing at a, a tennis social the other day and, uh, you know, some questions on that from the players. So um, how do you recommend that we improve our toss consistency? What can we do with it uh, for that? Okay, yeah, that's a great question. If you don't have a good ball toss, everything else is out the window. Right. But uh, yeah, the, I think the main key, the main key you've got to understand on a ball toss is we want to try and simplify the process. Uh, what you see amongst many players, they have a lot of um, factors of which things can break down. What I mean by that is, let's say, for example, a player has a bend in the toss and arm. When they have that bend, as you can see there, now it's uh, much easier for them to activate the other moving joint, which would be the elbow and the wrist. So now uh, some players, for example, straighten the arm at the release. Other players activate the wrist and the swing. So to eliminate that, what I'd recommend is, first of all, having a straight toss arm. So you have a straight arm. And by doing that, then you've simplified the process since all you have to do is lift that arm as a unit from the shoulder in a smooth manner. So now it becomes much more easy for players to try and to coordinate. That's the first step. Now, the second step is 
a lot of players uh, have the basically the idea in mind that they want to throw the ball up there, throw it up. But I try and have them. I, I have the idea of placing the ball up there. So it's a very smooth and relaxed manner. Uh, and the that come down to the straight out tossing on them. What I'd recommend players do is even if they're watching this right now, stand up, start with the arm straight, touching your near your hip, very in a low position, and just lift the arm as a unit from the shoulder in a smooth manner. And you can do it with a ball, just lift the arm up to a point where the shoulder is touching the chin. Just lift it up. And when you're in this position, main, check to see if you've maintained that straight tossing arm. And just do that over and over again and feel how it's a relaxed movement. There's no jerky, sudden uh, movement in there. A lot of players have that since they start too high with the tossing arm. Uh, but that's the main thing. Number one, have that straight tossing arm. Number two, lift the arm in a smooth manner from the shoulder, maintaining that straight tossing arm. And that's really, really helped me when I was on the surf, working on the ball toss. Great stuff, James. And yeah, I guess on average, it seems like a lot of players are just tossing it too quickly. So would you maybe suggest that players kind of be as maybe slow, like slow as possible or, or something like that? Or Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. A lot of players have a mistake with the service rhythm. Um, so they start the motion too fast. When you start it too fast, the ball usually ends up going too high, much harder to control. So that's a great point, yes. If you start the motion slower, it gives you a lot more control on the ball toss and also it helps you with the other components of the swing if you start slower. Awesome. Thanks, James. And then, so I guess, again, it's, you know, it's somewhat stylistic, but obviously it carries implications. So in terms of, you know, bringing both arms, both the tossing and the hitting arms up together versus having some lag where you keep the uh, hitting arm, uh, I guess, like down a little bit lower and it comes up like uh, after the, the tossing arm. Like, what, what do you suggest, like, in terms of, like, the, the simplest one that facilitates the best serve? Uh, for me, I promote more of that separation between them both. So you mm. toss the ball first and you delay the hitting arm. I just find that some players, when they have both arms going up at the same time, that's when things become very jerky and sudden. They move the racket too fast. Uh, and that results usually in a pause in the motion. The racket has to stop now since it's moving too fast. Um, so for me, I promote more of tossing the ball first and then initiating the swing. So what we say is after you've released the ball, so you release the ball approximately eye level, after you release, then you initiate the right to left from that point. You initiate the swing. That's what we usually teach players. Mm, I like that. Very simple and effective. Uh, and, and then I guess talking more about the role of the lower body, I um, mean, you know, obviously it can help a lot and, and, you know, with the unit turn, it's important to, to utilize it as well. So I guess, can you kind of describe like the main roles of, of the lower body with the surf? Yeah. Well, the, the first thing I'd um, have players uh, have in mind is when we talk a lot, a lot about jumping uh, on the serve, you want to jump for more power. Uh, I think more of terms of coiling the body. Since when you coil the body, the body's going to naturally uncoil. And I always remember it, Florian talking to me. He said, if you get an elastic band, you pull it in one direction. When you let go, there's a reaction in the opposite direction. So for every reaction, uh, there's an opposite uh, reaction also. So what I tell players to do is coil the body more. But how do you do that? Well, the first step is coil the upper body against the, the hips. So you turn the shoulders past the level of the hips. So you feel a pre-stretch down the side of the body. That's the first step. And then a very good idea to have in mind with the legs is basically soften the knees. 
just soften them and you feel how you go a little bit lower. And then when you do that, you feel a fully coiled position with the body. So you've turned the shoulders past the level of the hips. You've coiled the lower body. You don't want to go too low since now you have to recruit muscle in order to get back up. So you lose energy there. But then the idea is when the racket begins to move over the head, you're now in this fully coiled position. And then as the racket moves down and away, that's when you initiate from the ground up. So you fire from the right hip if you're a right-handed player, and that initiates the whole kinetic chain. Uh, but it starts from that position. So you're fully coiled here. The racket's moving over the head. When that happens, the body begins to uncoil. But for the legs and the lower body, the main thing that really helped me is focus more on coiling the body. Since if you, if you do that, the body will naturally uncoil. Yeah, that's fantastic stuff. And to your point about the timing as well, uh, you know, one of the big points I got from Rick Macy was that a lot of uh, players, they'll perform the racket drop uh, way too early and then push up with the lower body. And so that's like out of sync and that's, that's no good <laughs> yeah. in terms of yeah. power. So I'm sure you probably see that a lot. Oh yeah. It's a very big problem. Yeah, for sure. So, um, in terms of the second serve, I, I think, you know, obviously a ton of players uh, could, could benefit from having a more consistent second serve, you know, maybe even using it sometimes on the first serve, you know, so we don't suffer so many double faults and all that. So, what are some keys to developing uh, an effective and consistent second serve? Well, one of the questions I ask myself, and you can ask yourself this also if you're a player, what's the whole goal of the second serve? What are we trying to do? Well, we're trying to, number one, increase the upward angle of the swing since we're trying to impart more spin on the ball to give us more safety. So what's the best way to increase the upward angle of the swing? The best way, number one, is to remain more sideways. The differences in the motion itself between the first and the second serve are very, very slight. But what you'll see is the best players will stay more sideways since now that allows them to increase the upward angle of the swing. If you open up more, the swing is going to go more in the direction of the court, more forward. So by staying sideways, now you really increase the upward angle. Now, how do you get a feel for that? Well, there's many drills you can do. Uh, One of my favorites is if if you're on a tennis court and you have relatively high fences, go outside the court and serve over the fence. So now you really have to increase the upward angle around contact. Now, another way you can do that if you don't have a fence is simply do it on your knees. Make sure you put a towel down, obviously. You don't want to hurt your knees. Uh, But just get the feeling for basically brushing up the back of the ball around contact. Really feel how you're catching the ball thin, uh, as we say. And increase the upward angle, stay sideways. Uh, And visualize also the ball flight to the ball. What are you trying to achieve? Visualize it, see it very clearly. Uh, get a very clear picture in your mind what you're trying to do. Uh, and that also helped me a lot when I was doing it. But the main key is for me is stay sideways. The more you stay sideways, the more you increase the upward angle of the swim. Yeah, thanks for that, James. And yeah, I actually uh, just interviewed uh, Vanya King, who was uh, you know, top three in the world in doubles, top 15 singles. And, you know, one of her coaches, uh, one of the best drills that uh, she did for a kickser was just simply what you said was just, um, you know, serving f- from her, I think knees are sitting down one of those, mm. just forcing you to to hit that, that kick there to get it over the net. So a little more, uh, over rotation. I mean, I, that's obviously very, very important for the second serve, but is that also pretty important for even the first serve in terms of like, you know, a lot of players will like rotate too early and lose power on, on any serve. Yeah, that's a very common problem on all serves. Uh, and I think the the reason why it's a problem is we watch the pros on television and the naked eye can't pick up what's going on through contact. Since they swing with so much racket head speed, all you see is the finished position 
where they've completely opened up. But that's just forces acting upon their body. Since they swing with so much racket head speed, they naturally un uncoil. That's a natural reaction. But if you slow the motion down very closely, this is applies for the slice serve, the kick serve, and the first serve, flat serve. If you slow it down, you actually see that around contact, their body completely stops the non-hitting side of the body. And what happens is Vic Braden did studies and he found that if you stop the non-hitting side of the body at the right time before contact, the hitting side can accelerate at one and a half times faster. That's what they wow. found with studies. So you basically, they call it posting. You post one side of the body and the other side can accelerate much faster. So to do that, we just have players exaggerate it. So let's say you're a player who opens up too much. Now we've got to exaggerate in the opposite direction and we have you remain completely sideways. So we don't have you look where the ball is going since that's one of the main reasons. Players want to see where the ball goes so their head shifts. And if the head goes, the swing is going to follow. So, And then we have them hold the finish. Very, very important. If you're working on over-rotation, hold the finish and at the end, see where your upper body is pointing. If your upper body is completely opened up, then you know you've done something wrong. If the upper body, if you're a right-handed player and the upper body is pointing towards the right net post, then you've done something right. And one great way to do that is make sure you keep the torso arm, keep control of the torso arm, keep it tucked into the body and hold the finish where you finish arm over arm. So it's like a, you're completing the letter X when you finish, just like so. Very, very important for over-rotation. Very nice, James. Very nice. So I mean, we've covered a lot of great stuff on the serve, thanks to you. And so... How would you kind of go about overall, you know, in deciding, uh, you know, what area of the serve to start with and then like, you know, figuring out like how much they need, you need to practice for that. Like maybe just an overview of, you know, a process for, for changing technique. Yeah, that's a great question since um, our whole objective as a coach is uh, we don't want to overcomplicate it for a player. Uh, and that's when... It, that's a, basically a good uh, deceptor between a good coach and a not so great coach. Since if you overload the player's brain with too many things, now they scramble. They don't know what to do and everything just breaks down. So the whole objective for us is we have to identify the number one thing on your serve that needs to be fixed. Uh, that once fixed is going to give you the most amount of results in the shortest period of time. So for it's different for everyone. It's very personalized. So let's say, for example, you are focusing, let's say on the racket drop, you're focusing on getting into the racket drop. So how do you go about changing it? One of the most important things that helped me a lot, uh, I completely rebuilt my whole serve. I started with no serve at all. Uh, and it took me a long time. That's one thing. The first thing you have to keep in mind is it's a long-term process. There's no overnight success, overnight pill, magic pill you can take. You do have to commit yourself to going through the steps. And that's very, very important. Or I can say on that, if you do commit yourself to going through the steps and the progressions, pretty much anything is possible. If you've got two arms, two legs, then you can do it. That's what I always say. Uh, but change in technique, how do you do it? You really have to break it down into what we call micro progressions. One of the biggest mistakes I see players make is, let's say you're working on the racket drop. What's the first thing we all want to do? We go straight out on the tennis court, go to the baseline, and try and execute it serving into the service box. And it just completely breaks down. Why? As soon as you release that little yellow ball, your focus has shifted onto number one, making contact with the ball, and number two, onto the outcome. Was it good? Was it powerful? Was it in? Was it out? And as soon as you do that, you've detracted your focus from the mechanics you're trying to work on. And it's very natural. So what we have to do is we have to break the whole swing down and isolate it to give your brain the opportunity to process this new information. So how do you do that? The first step is we have players go inside the court, inside the baseline, and serve down the line. 
Now we take the outcome completely out of the equation. You've got no outcome to contend with. That's number one. The second thing is we isolate the swing. So we start in that half serve position, just like so. So we isolate the swing, makes it a lot easier for players. And then another really great one that helped me is, let's say that even players who do that, they go inside the court, they isolate the swing. What's the next thing they do, which can be detrimental? They just hit balls over and over and over and over again. So they may not be aware that they're reinforcing bad habits. Uh, so what I always recommend players do is start with a rotation of two shadow, excuse me, two shadow swings, one hit, two shadow swings, one hit. And by doing the two shadow swings after every, every hit, you're basically reinforcing the new mechanics. So now you're not reinforcing any bad habits. Very, very important. And then you build it up one step further. So now once that's natural, you do one shadow swing, one hit, one shadow, one hit. And then in the last stage, I recommend players do two hits, one shadow. So you slowly build it up in a step-by-step -step manner. And then all you do is you move it back to the baseline, still serving down the line. So as you can see, it's a very simple and step-by-step -step manner. But that's one of the keys to making any technical change. Uh, I promise you, if you go back to the baseline and try to execute it, uh, serving from the baseline into the service box, it's not going to work. You really have to break it down and isolate it. Very, very important. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, so many years, maybe decades of a particular technique. You know, you've got to, got to go in progression. Yeah. So, so, question for you: Say if you have multiple phases of the serve that are, you know, have some wonks and or problems with it. So, like, let's say, let's say your right to left is off. Um, it's incorrect, and then also your racket drop and you know, uh, elbow action is incorrect. So, do you should you not like hit? the ball basically because you have both of those wrong like should you just practice the right to left until you get that uh, and it's natural and and then like once that's like 100 percent there then you can go to the racket drop and hitting the ball yeah that's a that's a great that's a great question yeah the yeah. if you if you have let's say you have that you don't have a good right to left you don't have a good racket drop and so forth so you have a lot of things um out yeah. of sync the first step would definitely be to master it in the shadow swing um, I always re refer it back to martial arts. What do they do all the time? They shadow movement. They shadow the movements over and over again until they get the basic understanding of what they're trying to do. Since if you can't execute it in the shadow swing, very unlikely you'll do it when the ball is added to the equation. So yeah, that's the first step. But then uh, what I recommend you do is if you have like three or four things that are out of sync, make sure you only focus on one at a time. Isolate one since as soon as we try to incorporate a lot at once, your brain will just go on autopilot and you'll revert back to what you know. So just focus on one thing and that would be for me, the right to left. If you haven't got a good racket drop or even if the ball toss is out of sync, uh, then you've got to isolate the components one step at a time. Trying to coordinate all at the same time, it will break down. Yeah, very, very difficult to do that. I've tried. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so um, in terms of the, the slicer. I'm curious um, if you have any tips on how we can get a better feel of of really generating that uh, that slice. Yeah, there's um, one of the, the ideas you want to have in mind. This is where it comes into over rotation. Players think that to get the ball going, uh, let's say you're a right-handed player in the deuce court, to get the ball going out wide, they think they got to open up the body to really get the ball out wide. But basically, all you have to do is you have to contact more of the right edge of the ball. So you really to so to exaggerate that, what we actually have players do is first step you can do is hit the ball with the edge of the racket. Since in order to uh, hit a slice serve, you must lead with the edge of the racket. 
Now that does come down to the grip also. If you have an incorrect grip, very difficult to do that. But the first step is you have to lead with the edge in order to hit a slice serve. So the first step would be to hit the ball with the edge of the racket. It's an exaggeration or it's very good. The second step then would be to hit the ball, the right edge of the ball, really exaggerate it. And the ball will fly out to the left. You won't hit it very clean, but get the idea for catching the ball very thin on the right edge. So you're not changing anything with the body. You're not changing anything with the swing. Everything is the same. All you're doing is changing the racket angle uh, face at contact. Now, what does that also do to you? It gives you more disguise. If you're hitting a slice serve out wide and you open up the body to do it, players are going to read it. They're going to know, okay, he's going to hit the slice serve. I can read it. So by doing that, maintaining everything else the same, but just changing the racket angle at contact, uh, it's going to give you more disguise. But that's one of the best ways to do it is, number one, you have to lead with the edge of the racket. It's very important. But number two, really try and catch the ball uh, thinly on the right. And I remember Greg working with me on this, actually, uh, in London. And he actually had me trying to hit the doubles tram line first. So you really exaggerate it. Get the ball going out wide. And then you slowly move it back in. So you exaggerate it. As we, we always talk about exaggerating the correction. So you exaggerate out. Uh, missing wide completely and then you slowly from there you bring it back in but the best tip i can give is just go out there and really try and catch the ball thin on the right edge leading with the edge of the racket mm, great way to conceptualize it Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I guess, you know, so this question, the, the answer to it has a potential to bring up, you know, uh, some points that you've made earlier, which is totally fine. It's good to reiterate. Um, but, you know, a lot of times you'll see players who are in a pretty good uh, trophy position, but, you know, one player will get a huge pop on to serve. Another player, you know, won't get much on it at all, even though they seemingly look like they're both in pretty good trophy position. So what are some of the things that can go wrong, you know, after the trophy position that really rob you of the most power? Okay, yes, great question. Well, the first thing you've got to always check is when we talk about the trophy position, you have to keep in mind that it's a dynamic position. It's not a static position. Uh, when we talk about, okay, you want to get into the trophy pose, what does it sound like you want to get into? So players get there and they stop. And that's a problem. Then as soon as we stop the swing, you've now broken all the momentum and racket head speed. So now you have to recruit muscle again in order to reaccelerate the racket. And that's when things break down. That's when you have these hitches, the racket face opens from that point, and a lot of things do break down. So that's the first step. Make sure that you move through the trophy position. You don't stay there. That's the first step. Now, the second step is you also want to make sure that from this position, when the racket is above the head, you want to really allow the racket head to basically drop down and away from the body. So you can actually get into this position with the racket and basically let the weight of the racket head take over. Don't do it with a ball. Just do it in the shadow swing. 
and feel how the weight of the racket head drops down and away. A lot of players from this position, they swing directly up to contact with the hand from this point. But you want to let the elbow lead and basically let the hand fall down and away from the body. Allow this movement to happen. Very important. Since a lot of players, they get this, so they get the racket moving right to left, they get into this position, but then from there, they just go up to contact. They don't complete the full right to left. So that's also a very important point. Got it. Awesome. Appreciate that. In terms of um, books, because uh, you know, you've studied so much, and I know a lot of it has been video content and, and things like that and, and uh, physical locations, but uh, are there three books that you would gift a friend to help them improve their tennis game? First one has to be uh, Tennis 2000, Big Braden, 100%. Uh, uh-huh. Definitely get that. There's the other one. Give me one second. I got all my bookshelf here. Let me get it. Sure. Got to remember the name of it here. Yeah? Where is it? There it is. Secrets of a True Tennis Master by Welby Van Horn. Very, very good oh. book. I'd recommend you get that also. Uh, and then the other book for me, let's think what other book would I recommend you get? For me, it would probably be another Vic Braden book. Um, I believe it's called Mental Tennis. That's what it's called by Vic Braden. And it's an mm-hmm. excellent book. There's some great stories about Rod Laver in there. Um, and it really goes into more detail on the mind. The mind is so important, especially when you're working on technique. Uh, the mind can really mess you up. Uh, so those are the three I'd recommend. Tennis 2000, Vic Braden. Uh, Secrets of a True Tennis Master, Welby Van Horn. And then Mental Tennis by Vic Braden also. Very nice. I appreciate that. I guess um, pivoting back to the serve again, um, I guess any thoughts on uh, the finish and deceleration and, and what uh, we might want to think about with respect to that? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, one thing to keep in mind on the finish position, a lot of players um, try and they focus a lot on the finish position in terms of where they finish. And you've got to be careful when you do that since a lot of players compromise on what we call the up and out swing. Since they focus so much on finishing, they pull the swing down into that finish position. So what I'd recommend players do to get the feeling for the finish position is focus more on swinging up and out. If you accelerate on that up and out swing, what will happen is naturally the racket will release and naturally finish in that finish position. But players, just be aware that when you do try and get into that finish position and you force it, you see a lot of players pull the swing down and they end up missing a lot of balls into the net. So in terms of the finish position, uh, one great way to work on it is throwing a ball. Uh, I recently did a video on that and it helps you with that up and out swing. The more you focus on swinging up and out to get that right, uh, the swing will naturally release uh, into a good finish position. That's what I'd recommend for players. Very nice, James. And then for you personally, uh, what aspect of the serve that you improved for yourself made the most uh, difference for your serve? Well, I had the I had the most common problem. I had that open racket face uh, when I flipped open. Uh, so for me, it was really mastering that right to left. As soon as I had that right to left arm action where the palm and strings remain closed, it allowed me to get into a better racket drop. Uh, it allowed me to swing more with the edge of the racket. Uh, so that's what it's a benchmark pretty much for all players. If you get a good right to left, a lot of good things are going to be happening for your serve. And that's the main benchmark I have for all players. Uh, and you'll probably see it yourself. If you see a person who moves the racket in a fluid manner, right to left over their head, usually they have a very good serve, especially if it's moving fluidly too. They seem to get a lot of effortless power. So that would be the main thing for me. 
Very nice. Very nice. And then, I mean, did that entail any sort of grip chains or was it simply just putting your palm down and that's it? <laughs> no, I actually, I had a jacked up grip also. I was more on an Eastern grip with the index knuckle and heel uh, pad. So I did have to coordinate a grip change uh, in there, but just be aware that any players who are watching, trying to coordinate a big grip change along with uh, other mechanics you may be working on, that can be quite difficult. Uh, so what I'd recommend for players is if you are making a grip change, work in incremental stages. So if you are on bevel three, for example, uh, the Eastern grip where the index knuckle and heel pad are on bevel three, instead of moving straight over onto the continental, where the uh, that's bevel two on the racket, move onto the ridge between bevel three and bevel two. So you're moving up half a bevel. So now it's more of an incremental change. That makes it a lot easier for players to coordinate a grip change. But yeah, I had the whole package. I had to rebuild the whole thing. So <laughs> very nice. And then I, I guess I'm just curious, like how 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 long did it take for you to to uh, retool your serve until it was in a pretty good place? probably took me i'd say just over six months took me a long time considering i was working in the beginning i don't recommend this to any players watching uh, i dropped out of school at this point and i was working probably six to seven hours every single day on the court on my technique to really try and fast uh, fast track the process but even with those hours it took me uh, around six months since i made all the mistakes every other player makes i was the person who went back to the baseline um and made all the mistakes but yeah, it took me six months. Uh, but then also one thing I always say to players is uh, technique is a maintenance program. Even now when I always go out on the tennis court and there may be some slight things that I have to work on and I always refer it back to a car. In order for a car to run properly, you have to service the engine. You have to keep servicing it, maintaining it. If you don't, if you think that you just do it once and all of a sudden you got it for the rest of your life, that's not the case. It's all about maintenance. And that's where it's all about growth. It's just continuous growth. Hmm. So, so would that mean then that, you know, if I've had some issues with the right to left and then I, I, you know, I finally like learn it and it's all good, but still periodically I should be performing, you know, some of those shadow, shadow exercises, the salutes and things like that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. What I'd recommend is let's say you spend several months working on the right to left and it feels pretty good. Now I'd always check in every two to three weeks, film yourself, see how mm -hmm. it looks. If you see it's breaking down a little bit, then you just take the steps back, go through all of the progressions and build it back up. But one of the best ways to maintain technique, and this is what I found, is develop a five to 10 minute shadow swing routine that you do every day. And what I recommend for players, if you've got more time, always do five to 10 minutes of shadow swings before and after every session you do. So before you do it, you're reinforcing the new habits. And then after you do it, after your session, you may be cleaning up on some things, some mistakes you've been making on the serve that you're not aware of. So now you're cleaning it up and you're giving your brain that idea for what you need to be executing. But that shadow swing routine is so important. I highly recommend players do that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, are there any particular servers, uh, I guess professionals, that you have stu found yourself studying the most that maybe you, you suggest that we should uh, look at in slow-mo? Yeah, there's. Um, I studied a lot of Federer, of course. Uh, Feliciano Lopez, great serve, mm -hmm. very fluid arm action, excellent serve. And then also there's, uh, what's his name? There's an older player. Can't remember his name off the top of my head. I might have to send you the name, Murban, and have you insert from? it. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> know where he's from. He's a old, much older player. He was a player basically in the in the Vic Braden books, but he had an excellent serve, very fluid arm action. 
but you'll you'll see if you look at all of the greatest servers um you do obviously get some which do it differently and that works for them of course by all means i wouldn't recommend changing it but you'll see the best players have all the fundamentals in place but i i looked a lot at federer uh lopez uh, and all the great sampras and so forth all these players yeah it makes sense great server so uh, in terms of um actually looking at the ball through you know the contact you know i do have uh a friend who said that it's it's like impossible for him to do it for some reason. But I mean, how important is that for players to have a, a good serve? Oh, it's, it's very, very important. As I, as I said earlier, um, as soon as the head goes, the swing and the body is going to follow. So basically, whatever the head is pointing, everything else will follow. Uh, so the most common problem we see is players want to see where the ball is going too early. And some players even look before they make contact with the ball. So they're already looking on the other side where the ball is going. Uh, so it's so important that when you swing through contact, you want to keep the head still. Now, one great way, if you still want to see where the ball is going, then you can use your eyes. Keep the head and chin still, but mm -hmm. then use your eyes to look where the ball is going. But it's very important that throughout the swing, you keep your head very still. They call it the quiet eye. So you keep the head still. And by doing that, then, you're not going to open up and over-rotate, and it will help you maintain that up-and-out swing uh, on the serve. And how do you work on that? One of the best ways is exaggerate. Don't look where the ball goes. Hit the serve. Don't even look. Just keep your gaze towards where you just hit the ball. And now I'm in a position I can go on court, and I can demonstrate it to players, and I can hit very good serves. I know that they're going to be going in since I trust the technique. I've done it so many times. I trust the process, and I know that if I execute everything correctly here, the result is going to take care of itself. I don't need to worry about that. So exaggerate in the opposite direction. Don't look where it goes in the beginning. It's going to be very weird for you, but it's a good exaggeration. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, exaggerating is going to really help you get to where you want to be. So in terms of the slicer versus the kick serve or topspin serve. So, you know, I'm sure there's some players out here who, who are thinking, you know, I feel like I don't have that great of a kick serve or that great of a uh, slice serve. So I'm wondering which one I should learn first. So in terms of just effectiveness and uh, ease of learning, uh, which serve would you recommend that they pursue first between those two? Uh, between the slice and the kick serve, I would recommend learning the slice serve first, since okay. it's the closest to hitting the first serve. Uh, you'll pronate a little later through a slice serve, but working on the slice serve, it allows you to work on pretty much very important components that is leading with the edge of the racket uh, and so forth. It's a very important serve. And if you master that and you get all the arm mechanics down for the slice serve, it'd be very easy for you to then make the subtle changes for the kick serve from that point. Uh, but that's what I recommend first, the slice serve. And then from there, if, if you're going to include all three, I'd recommend you learn more of the flat serve first, then move on to the slice serve, then you can move on to the kick serve from there. Gotcha, James. And just to clarify one thing, you mentioned that uh, one reason is because on the, the slice serve, you pronate a bit later. Could you uh, clarify that point? Yeah. So what, what you'll see is on the first serve, they'll lead with the edge of the racket. And then just before contact, they'll begin to pronate from the forearm. And the racket face will begin to open to contact. On the slice serve, they'll pronate later since you're contacting more of the right edge of the ball. So you're going to be leading with mm -hmm. the edge of the racket longer. And then just through contact, now they begin to pronate from the forearm and they internally rotate the shoulder from that point. But on the slice serve, you'll see uh, they'll pronate the forearm later, and that allows them to make contact more with the right edge of the ball at contact. Uh, and then, obviously, with the kick, I guess it's uh, even earlier. Um, yeah, on the, on the kick serve, 
it's going to be pretty much the it's going to be all the same mechanics for the um uh for the first serve but all you'll do is you're going to turn the body more sideways and then basically yeah it's going to be let me think here yeah it's going to be even later on the kick serve yeah oh later correct okay. yeah interesting interesting got it and and then i guess just to clarify um uh, for the audio version, like it, why is it like later? Cause where, where are you hitting it exactly? So for the kick serve. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is why is it later? Well, the later you leave it, the more the racket is going to be leading with the edge. As soon as you mm -hmm. open up the racket face too early and you have a flat string bed, it's very difficult to hit with any spin. You're going to be bunting the ball. So that's why by pronating later, now you can lead more with the edge. And then from there, uh, you brush up the back of the ball. And now you pronate uh, from the forearm. So by gotcha. lead, by um, delaying it, delaying that pronation, you're going to be able to lead with the edge more. And that helps a lot when you're trying to hit with the different spins on the serve. Got it. Got it, James. That's awesome. Fantastic. So um, in terms of, um, you know, ensuring that we practice, uh, you know, some of the whatever concepts we need to practice that you mentioned consistently and everything like any advice on on planning out uh, our practices and things like that yeah uh, it all depends obviously on your on your schedules uh, how busy you are uh, but if you're working on the serve for example i'd at least try to do uh, maybe two or three sessions a week where you go on court and you maybe just work on it for 30 to 40 minutes by yourself just working on serves if you can't do that, then just try it once a week, just doing it for 30, 40 minutes. But for all the players, I am sure you have at least five to 10 minutes a day where you can do those shadow swings. If you can just commit yourself to doing that every day, uh, that will really help the process. But for an average player who's got some time on their hands, at least two times a week, I'd recommend you go out there uh, and work on it for 30 minutes up to an hour. Don't surpass the hour mark since you don't want to put any strain on the shoulder if you overdo it. Uh, but that's the general recommendation I would give for that. Very nice, James. So, you know, obviously it's, it's clear that you've got a lot of great knowledge as well as OTI and, and you know, Greg Florian, Adeem and, and the team. So what are you up to, uh, you know, in the near future in terms of uh, your, your teaching adventure? Teaching adventure. That's a, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, now I'm going to be starting to move more out on court and do a more on-court instruction. Basically, the past five, six years, it's just been a lot of training, building myself up as an instructor and so forth. I've uh, been doing hundreds of reviews, online reviews, uh, video reviews. Uh, so the real objective now over the next three to four years is getting myself out on the tennis court and basically helping as many players as possible. That's where my true passion is. There's nothing better than seeing a player uh, have that one, that feeling. They hit the ball once, they know what it feels like, and you see their face light up. They're like, wow, okay, this is awesome. Uh, so, yeah, that's the main passion for me is going out on court now uh, and helping as many uh, players as I can with their game. Very nice, James. And you are pretty young, right? Aren't you like 21 or? Good guess. 21. Yeah. I turned 21 yeah. on the 15th of July. Yeah. Oh, cool. Wow. Nice. Yeah. I, well, <laughs> I won't tell you my age, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I turned, uh, I will, I guess I'm, I turned 36 in uh, on July 25th. So July birthday. Oh, nice. in July, the good month, man. Good month. The best yeah. month. <laughs> yeah, great month, great month, and and I actually didn't guess, even though I was hesitant sounding on the on your age because it's Florian, you know, uh, or not Florian. Um, Greg told me your age, and I was like, wow, oh, he's twenty one. 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, but yeah. that just goes to show you, you know, like if you are very passionate about something and, you know, uh, in, a, in a few years, uh, I guess for you, like five or so, like, um, you can, you can do great things and learn so much. So, uh, very good stuff there. And then where can we follow you, uh, in OTI online, um, and check out your stuff? Uh, you can go on to our YouTube channel, for example. If you go onto YouTube and type in online tennis instruction, you can see all of our free videos uh, on there. Uh, then also, we do have a Facebook page. It's not as active at the moment. We're more active on YouTube. That's our main page. And then myself, to be honest with you, I'm not a big social media guy. I don't use it much. Uh, but TikTok. I got <laughs> not, <laughs> not on that yet. Okay. <laughs> not having gone on that onto that wave, but. I use a LinkedIn, for example, that's on there. Uh, just type in James Ludlow. I'm not sure how it all works. As I said, I'm not a, I'm not a social media guy. But uh, yeah, the main one I'd recommend is YouTube. Online tennis instruction, type that in for YouTube. Uh, and you'll see all the videos from the great instructors. Greg, Nadim, Florian, these guys are way above me as instructors. I'm, I feel privileged to learn from these guys. They know so much more than me at this stage. And it's, every day is a learning process. I love it. Yeah, well, I really think, you know, that's part of why you've become such a, a great instructor is because you recognize, uh, you know, that, that there's still more to learn and, you know, you're, you're humble. And so um, those are great quality traits. I guess also just any, um, any advice on the coaching front for coaches who are listening in terms of how to best develop players uh, technique or maybe any mistakes that you've seen from coaches in that front? Yeah, the if you're a coach and you're in the in the industry, I think the first uh, thing that you have to do is you have to study it yourself and try and do it yourself. If you get that personal experience of trying to do it yourself, now you can relate to the player. Uh, if you can relate to the player, it's so much easier since now you build that connection quite quickly. Uh, so I can always relate my experience with players if they're feeling frustrated with trying to work on the technique. I understand that. Um, but also, you know, you got to keep improving your own teachings, your studying. So I always recommend if you are a coach and you're looking to improve, really improve your own skills as a, as a coach yourself. Go out there, study as much as you can, absorb everything. I'm not saying just study our stuff, study everything. There's no right or wrong. Uh, and then with the player itself, just make sure you don't overload them. Um, you have to find the balance between giving the information and then not giving too much information. Uh, and then the other step I'd really try and do is trying to have them develop independent thought and independent thinking. So what I mean by that is we make them aware of what they're doing in the beginning. We walk them through all the steps, but then we have to give them their own independent thinking. What I mean by that is they have to know, okay, this is the correct movement. I now know what I'm doing. I know how to execute it. So you, to do that, you simply ask them questions and get their brain working. So now they're independently thinking about what they're trying to do. And if you do that, then you're setting themselves up as a great player since now they can self-diagnose themselves. They don't need to rely on somebody else uh, to give them that, that advice. And I think that's a great one also. Fantastic. Thanks for that, James. So uh, I will close my questioning with this last one uh, that I ask every time. Um, and so, I mean, you've obviously given us a lot of great tips today, but what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their serve? To improve their serve. What I'd say is if you can get a fluid arm action 
get the right to left moving in a fluid manner. So just get this movement here. Imagine that you're saluting. You just get this movement, moving the racket right to left in a fluid manner. A lot of good things are going to happen for you. Uh, and that's the main thing I'd recommend any players work on. Just imagine that you're saluting, moving the racket. What I mean by right to left is the tip of the racket starts off pointing to the right side fence if you're a right-handed player. And then it moves right to left over the head. So the tip then points to the left side fence. So it moves this right to left over the head. If you just get that, a lot of good things are going to happen for you, Siv. Very nice, James. Very nice. And um, is there anything else that you uh, want to share with us uh, t- today before we uh, we end this interview? Well, there's a, there's a great quote. I got to reference Bruce Lee again. This is one of my favorites. Uh, and it's all about when you're learning technique and so forth. The quote is, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once. I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. And that really hits home. If you if you repeat it over and over again, focusing on the quality of the repetition, not just doing it for the sake of it, you're actually honing in, really focusing on what you're going to do. If you repeat it over and over and over again, I can promise you that you'll get the results you're looking for. And that that's, relates back to that quote. And make sure also the other very important uh, advice I give players is to enjoy the process. You know, yeah, the, the next two or three years are going to pass anyway. And if you decide that you're going to go on this journey to working on technique or working on your game, then you may as well enjoy it. I know a lot of players put a lot of pressure on, on themselves. They compare themselves to other players. But always remember that you're, you're only in it. You're only against yourself. You're not against anybody else. So don't compare yourself to anyone else. What I'd recommend is you do is just every day say, okay, how can I be better than myself than I was yesterday? So even if I can improve just by 1%, then that's a great day. Love it, James. A uh, lot of great info. And, you know, I certainly learned a lot. And I uh, really highly recommend that everybody check out uh, OTI, Online Tennis Instruction, their YouTube channel. Just type in Online Tennis Instruction uh, in the search bar on youtube.com. And also, I will have all the links that we mentioned today on the show on the show notes page so you can just check out uh you know in inside the app or where my website wherever uh you'll you'll see the links there so james thanks a lot for being on the show and uh it was a lot of fun and you know best of luck moving forward and i'm sure we'll connect again soon and appreciate it yeah thank you very much Mervan. it's been awesome i feel very privileged to be on the show with you i've watched a lot of your uh shows with greg and florin and so forth you do an excellent job Uh, So thank you very much for having me on. Thanks a lot, James. Really appreciate the kind words. Take care. All right. I really hope you enjoyed this Serve Masterclass with James Ludlow. And I really enjoyed it as well. And I just want you to give me your feedback and let me know what you thought helped you out the most. And just email me at mirban at tennisfiles.com. That's M-E-H-R-B-A-N at tennisfiles.com. I'd I'd love love to know um, what you took away most from this episode. And on top of that, uh, you know, email me first, but if you got value out of this episode, I would highly appreciate it if you left a review for the Tennis Files podcast and you can do that in Apple Podcasts preferably or in the podcast app of your choice that you use to listen to the show. I just say Apple Podcasts uh, preferably because it it seems like that's the biggest driver uh, of the show and where it's most listened to and where it kind of goes up and is most visible in the ranks and stuff. But uh, reviews anywhere are appreciated. So thank you so much for that. And I do want to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the show. And this one is by Jim Rohn. And Jim says, 
either you run the day or the day runs you. And so that really, you know, highlights that we are in control of our time and our choices. And so don't be a slave to other people's wishes. Just do your own thing. Uh, you know, even if you have a boss, whatever, you know, I mean, you can still take command of at least most of your day and certainly your tennis game and how you approach that because you are the only one who's, who's really controlling that with hopefully help from a good support team. All right. Well, that's it for now. I'm going to head off to the City Open now and I hope you have a great day, week, and month and keep improving your game. This is Mirabon signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.